nice surprise. Hello, everybody. Hey, everyone. Look at you. Will you look at you? I have headphones on because we're going to interview Bill Cirillo. Can't wait to, to talk to Bill. And how are things been with you, Jeffrey? Well, this is the two half squads, if you don't mind my saying so. And what are we dedicated to? We are dedicated to one and only thing, and that is the greatest game in the world. Advanced, Advanced squad, squad leader. leader. Yes. And I'm Jeff. And I'm Dave. And this is episode... 96. Yay! Rolling them out quick. Well, yes, we are. Still two a month, but it seems quick. Have a beer. Thank you. Have a beer. What kind of beer is that? What well, do you got there? The real good one we had. Yeah, this was <clears> really <throat> good. We started before the show started. <laughs> Not really, but <laughs> well, we interviewed yeah, before we recorded yeah, this. Okay. And original Belgian wheat beer, Holy Garden. <laughs> I think it's pronounced Hoogarden. Hoogarden. And this is uh, was really good, wasn't it, Jeffrey? Yes, it was very good, as these weedy beers are. I kind of like them. You know, kind of, they're kind of... A little bit thick, very uh, kind of yeasty smelling, you know, that uh-huh. that typical yeasty smell. A little lighty, and Light, um, you know, not a heavy. Yes, and I liked it because I opened it and I let it sit for a little while because the these kind of beers I like when they're a little warmer. Oh, okay. Yeah, so it's a little a little more like pond scum. Than... <laughs> no, <laughs> no, it was really actually, good. It's imported yeah, it from good. Belgium and it really wasn't that expensive. Where'd you get this? Hogarden at Dominic's. Oh, wow. Ding, ding. Yeah, Dominic's. Yeah, that was good, and um, I drank it all. And I don't know, should I have another tonight? Well, I have more of these in the car. I just threw two in the cooler. Oh no, I, I wouldn't want my... you to go out to the car. Well, sure. And I have beer upstairs happen. in the fridge. I brought the, the summits because that's what I had normally. The... All right, I'll have a summit. All right. I'm well, I can, the, I can have two beers. The Maybach or the. I'll have the one that you haven't drunk out of yet. Well, I haven't drunk out of that either. Oh, okay. Either one of them, the Porter. Okay. All right, I'll take the porter. Porter or Maybach. Yeah. Anyway, we're talk- We're supposed to be talking about squad leader. And people think, you know, I don't, th- I don't know. Do you think people think we talk too much? We don't talk that much about beer. I mean, it's not like we well, I worry have about much to say. my son hearing that a lot oh. but when he grows up. But I'm not Does sure he listen how- to the show? Not yet much, no. Okay. They like the comedy bits. They hear all the comedy bits yeah. at home. Yeah. Usually right after we've recorded them, I take them home. And over the next day or two, we manage to make everyone listen to them. Yeah. Um, yeah, because <laughs> we're we're proud of them. I know my wife we? doesn't listen much. Yeah, even to the comedy bits. Uh, not much to anything. Yeah, I think your wife's a more dedicated listener. Well, cheers, clink. Now it's a Maybach and a porter and drink. That didn't clink very well. Yeah, this is definitely heavier than the nice, lovely Hull Garden, and I would prefer a Hull Garden. So maybe I'll go to that car. <laughs> As we, we start to do episode 80, 97 of this. So 96, yes, we got a great interview coming up. So how have you been, Dave? We'll, we can talk a little Good, bit sir. before the interview starts. Yeah. Yeah. Been, been busy. Not not with school, obviously, because you're off. It's been a kind of a good summer so far, hasn't it? Uh, yeah. Doing some brickwork around the house, mm-hmm. laying, uh, well, you know, little patio uh, edgers and building a retaining wall in the front. Him got that started. Yeah, painted for the Tuminans. they Thankfully, gave me some employment. Oh, nice. And got a job for another gal tomorrow. Mm-hmm. And how, how were you? What did we you went, do on Independence Day? And we don't call it, I don't call it Fourth of July anymore. Well, we used to go into a, oh, that's, I like that. Yeah, I've stopped calling it Fourth of July this year. 
And I urged everybody to stop calling it 4th of July because that is meaningless. It's Independence Day. Yeah, and it's true. I, I stopped calling it the 4th, ironically, too, but I, I was oh, starting really? to call it George. George is George. George. So <laughs> it didn't George. make sense, you know? Yeah. So I, I think I'll do Independence Day now. Yeah, good. Good for you. Uh, we, we went and sat, usually eat at the Timonen's house, cookout, and some other friends, and then went to this church that owned a big lot. Um the playground area and stuff next to the launch pads, kind of. Oh, for the Good fireworks? Yeah. yeah. And last year they closed it off. I don't know if it was insurance reasons or people hmm. would defecate out there. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what they did. Why would they do that? They, cl- <laughs> they did have one outhouse out there. Uh, so they closed it off. We were all a little, a little irate, but, you know, it's their property. So this year we went. The, over the next fence, they fence it off, which is right behind the Hobby Lobby store. Oh, okay. Oh. So we sat on a concrete with with brick walls behind us. Yeah. <laughs> Rather unique. And only one other people walked through that alley a lot, moving toward the grassy areas. And we were there in our chairs. And uh, right as the fireworks were getting started, a van pulled in with an elderly couple in it. And they had their food up on their dashboard on some kind of tray thing. And they ate their dinner and watched the fireworks. And the second they were over, they started their car up and boom, they were gone. And I like this area. Actually, I, I didn't mind the concrete. One of our friends thought it would not be a great place for the future. Others liked it a lot. Well, that's good. And, but the important thing is you saw the fireworks. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sitting behind the Hobby Lobby. Yeah. I didn't see fireworks this year, and my wife was out of town over Independence Day, so uh, but I did go to a friend's house. I, I've got a friend with a with a very nice house uh, right on a golf course, and the fireworks were right across the the water hazard from us. So we had great seating, and it was a beautiful night out, and um, very nice, very nice. Yeah, not a lot of mosquitoes or anything. Nope, nope, it was good. So and a lot of stuff going on with the two half squads. I mean, you know, as far as we're getting a lot of mail and. Seems to be a lot of activity lately. We do have a lot, uh, which we will get to in the next episode. And I think yeah, we'll do mail in tonight. The next episode. Will be a whole interview. How long was the interview? It's, it was an about, hour. Be about an hour. Yeah, it was like um, an hour and two minutes or something like that. So, and all really good content. I mean, it was yeah, Bill, Bill was Cirillo. Like, yeah, excellent. Now I read a little bit about the battle. Of Budapest. Oh, you know, I was going to ask him that. I was going to say, and I, because I don't know that much about it, so do you have like a quick overview you can yeah. give us? Yeah. So we're talking to Bill Cirillo about Festung Budapest, and I was going to ask him, can you give us an overview of the battle? So tell me, what, what was it about? Well, the Germans, the Hungarians were getting ready to surrender, cut a deal with the Allies near the, uh, 44 October and so, so on, and... So the Germans, of course, strong-handed things. I think they kidnapped a guy named Horthy. His he was the leader of the Hungarians. His son threatening to kill him if they didn't keep fighting. And then the Germans swept in there when the leader was talking with the Russians hmm. and took over. And then the Hungarians split into different factions, which are mentioned in the podcast, right? Yeah, but. What amazed me about this was that this is a battle on par with Stalingrad in the Battle of Berlin. Really? It is that big. Um, it lasted longer than the Battle of Berlin. 
and the civilians were trapped inside also. And so I'm amazed that we haven't heard more about this yeah. particular Festung, which is Fortress, of course, Budapest, right? Yeah. And the Arrow Cross group of Hungarians were the ones that allied with the Germans and kept fighting on. And so Bill will describe battles where they're on both, the Hungarians are on both sides. Must have been horribly. Splitting. I mean, battle, uh, you know, war has got to be confusing enough when it's going on. But to have different factions like that, I mean... I don't know. How do you, how do you know yeah. which guy to shoot at? Yeah, very, you know? very confusing. Yeah, very um, confusing. Yeah, this siege of Budapest was 102 days. You know, Vienna fell after two weeks and six days. And uh, Warsaw was a, a, a scene of a major battle for European cities. Yeah. And so just really, again, amazing. It was so large. Very, very high casualty rates, estimated Germans... Uh, 40,000 dead, 62,000 wow. wounded, oh 60% of the Red Army losses in there were there. The inhabitants got trapped in once the Soviets surrounded the city. Yeah. And so that know, makes lo- lots had fled, but I think 800,000 or more. I, mean, oh. I don't, forgot Gosh. where I got this stat. I'm looking at this page here. But, um, yeah, a lot of them were in the city also. I'm always um, astound, astounded by that kind of statistic because a lot of times, and you see, I see this kind of thing, not even in war, but like a fire, wildfire sweeping through some yeah. some part, and there's some people there that say, yeah, I'm not leaving. I'm staying here. <laughs> I've been in this house for 55 years, and I'm not leaving. And, you know, a fire is one thing, so maybe, you're, maybe you leave if there's a fire. But people that will stay, you know, all the army is marching on your town. Well, you know, I grew up here and I'm not leaving. I just think, wow. Well, that does happen. But in this case, the, the, the Soviets encircled the city yeah. more rapidly than they thought um, oh, and okay. didn't get out in time, um, whereas others had fled. But, yeah, it's it's just cr- kind of crazy, yeah. you know, the whole thing. Yeah. So, well, um, and Bill mentions that there is a... Um, and we'll have to look for this, that an article that got him started on this idea of doing Festung Budapest appeared in Military History Quarterly magazine in 1999 called The Siege of Budapest. He said it's available. We'll try to put that in the show notes. Put a link up, and I'll, I'll ask him to email us maybe some of the um, National Archive. Yes. Aerial photos. Yeah, that'd be great. So, we, yeah, we need that. we need some nice photos for the, for the show, and we'll have to get a picture of Bill. So, should we... Start the interview? Let's do it. We'll jump right in. Okay. Here it is. Hello. 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 Is this Sean Deller's man cave? This is the Sean Deller man cave. It is. Is this (laughs) Sean himself? Uh, No, this is Bill Cerullo. Oh, it is Bill. Yeah, I'm on my cell phone. Gotcha. All right. So, well, this is Jeff and Dave, the two half squads. Hello. Hello, Bill. Gentlemen, how are you this evening? It must be a big thrill for you to finally meet us. <laughs> it, it, it is actually actually we've ridden the elevator together at, at uh, Aslock before. Oh, did we really? Oh, we did. Yeah, two years ago when you guys were broadcasting live. Was it two years ago? Three yeah. years ago? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Was Festung out then? No, I don't think it was out yet. No, it was pending. Oh, okay. Otherwise, I would have really, really been impressed with that elevator ride. Yeah. Yeah, I was I was not the international celebrity that I am today. <laughs> yeah. Well, you are. In fact, 
right now, can you guess where my daughter is in Europe? Uh, I'm going to guess Budapest. You are correct. She's on a mission trip there teaching English and sharing the gospel. Uh, so she's in Budapest right now, and I meant to show her the maps from your game before she left. But we Give her the know. maps. Give her the maps and say, carry those, carry these around with you, honey, and ask people where. How do you get to the uh, hotel? Yeah. So you didn't gift her with a set in order to tell her to put the slope lines on because uh, there wasn't enough detail on the map board. You wanted no. to get it just, just right? That's no, right. I did not do that. Yeah. We're we're sorry we co we're calling a little bit late. We had some technical difficulties, as is typical with technical stuff. And um, yeah. So normally what we do is talk for two minutes, which we have done, and now we're going to hang up and listen to it, make sure all the levels are good. Then we'll call you back and actually do the interview, if that's okay. Unless unless right. our unless our window of opportunity is closed. Oh no, not at all. We're okay. in the always we're always in the we're in the tenuous. Let's find a scenario phase of the evening. Um, oh okay. Sean just. Sean just finished kicking my butt. We had started a game of uh, Picket to Charge to celebrate the 150th anniversary. Yeah, and then the yeah. battle ran, ran a little long, so he finished. The Iron Brigade finished me off about 30 minutes ago. So, gotcha. Okay. All right, we will call you right back. And if the yep. sound quality is not good here, um, Sean, your house number is actually, there's a landline down here, right? Yeah, there's an yeah. alternate. If this isn't working, there's an alternate number to try. Okay. If, if you wouldn't mind, we'd like to try that because the quality is a little bit uh, dicey. Bill Srilla speaking. Ah, oh, hello, Bill we're Srilla. back. Gentlemen, is this yeah, any it better? Is, yes, it is much yeah, better. Yeah, it's much, much better. better. Oh, good. Yeah, you can complain to Verizon. You could probably get out of your contract saying, people can't understand me. Uh, I get a lot of that, yeah. but that's just in general. So yeah, I get that too. Yeah. So, well, uh, it's yeah, it's um, I, I, you know, I, do, I don't remember meeting you in the elevator. No, um, Aslock, I, I don't think we actually exchanged any words other than hey, okay. how are you guys doing? Okay. I think, I think that was the uh, yeah. Okay. Well, it's very nice to meet you because, and we've we've been wanting to do this for a long time. So yes, glad and to finally get this going. Thank you for your time. Very important. Uh, Oh no! Nope, thanks for the invite, and 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 this isn't this isn't for the future prestigious hundredth episode, is it? <laughs> no, because if we saved it for then, we'd actually have something of really good value to use yeah. on the, that episode. We want to be sure that episode one hundred has absolutely no redeeming value. <laughs> no redeeming value whatsoever. Okay, yeah. all right. It sounded like so. you guys were shooting for that off your last podcast. Yeah. So. Well. I just want to make sure you were sticking with the plan. Yeah, I swear it's one of those things. It's like this is 96 now. And yeah, this will be 96. 96 and yeah. I think 97 will get done soon, and soon it's going to be 100, and we'll be like, oh, we didn't plan anything. Kind of snuck up on us. <laughs> ah, okay. <laughs> good. It's all good to know. It's like we didn't see it coming. You know, how can that be? They're all numbered. How can you not see it coming? Anyway. You know, and sometimes, you know, you've got bad math downstream, and you're, you know, you're really at. <laughs> <laughs> One less than you think, or, you know. That's it. <laughs> I guess we should jump right into the product, Festung Budapest. Yeah. Why don't you... I'd like, uh, like to know how this, came, the, how this came about. How is the it... The genesis that, of this. How did, you, how did you decide that there wasn't enough to do with ASL <laughs> and you needed to create more stuff? How did okay, so, well, but before we dive into that, a couple oh, of things. Sure. One, I wanted to thank yeah. you for the coverage you provided back in episode 66 when oh. you did the initial review on the out of the box. You're very welcome. Pleasure. So, so thank you for that. 
And then uh, the other important question is, is this the second show of the night? So you guys are like into the beer phase and, <laughs> no. the, and, and the tiny teens, or the um, or this is the first show of the night? No, first show of this the night. This is the first uh, okay, show. Okay, so, so you're still in the coffee phase. Yeah. Right? Okay. Actually, in your we'll honor. We'll probably pop a drink soon now that the tech's working. But um, And since you I'm brought it up, I always make Coke it, Zero I, right I, now. I always make it a, a practice to open a beer if somebody suggests one or <laughs> uses any words containing the letter B. Oh, okay. So... Uh, You've All right, so, so my first name is Bill. Yes. So, so now you're good to go, right? <laughs> good. Thank you, Dave. Yes, and so I think I'll, I will try and push Jeff to get two done tonight. I don't know. We haven't talked yet. No. But yeah, come All on, right. Jeff. All right. I brought some stuff. All I, right. I brought some other stuff besides Bill. Anyway, let's let Bill <laughs> talk now. Yes, how about it? Oh, sure. Uh, backstory. Let's see. Um, back in ooh, late 99, uh, Military History Quarterly uh, published an article written by Peter Zwack. At that time, Peter was a major in the U.S. Army. Uh, and it was a nice article covering the siege of Budapest. And mm-hmm. that article is actually available free for download at the Military History Quarterly magazine website. So if you're interested. And it kind of caught my attention. And I went through... And, and looked through all the existing scenarios and really didn't see, other than maybe one DASL scenario and maybe one regular scenario, a lot of coverage on, on Budapest. So that caught my interest, and I dropped uh, MMP a line at that point, talked to Brian and Perry, uh, whom I'd known from attending Winter Offensive from like the very beginning, and said, hey, is, you know, is there interest in, in this kind of a, a product? And at that point, I was envisioning some kind of a scenario pack with some you know, geo boards that were reflective of you know, more of a city fight. Uh-huh. Um, but MMP had been also approached at that time by Bruce Kirkaldi, and Bruce is out in California, and Bruce had done some initial layout of a hassle map on what is currently reflected in the module. So Bruce had drawn up at that time two maps that covered effectively almost the same area that's in the final package and had laid out you know, a, a draft map that was you know, fairly reflective of, of, the, of the area. And so MMP, uh, Kirk, and Brian and Perry all suggested um, that you know that potentially Bruce and I talk about a teaming arrangement, uh, forming a partnership, and and we did, and that partnership lasted for roughly uh, I'd say four or five years, in which you know we started to um, flesh out the the design for more of a the, the historical module that you see today, and um, and then. Bruce and I ended our partnership about five years in, but Bruce was massively kind enough to turn over the rights to the map artwork to MMP. Mm. And so, and then I ran with the design work from that point on. And Bruce was on the West Coast, did you say? Yeah, Bruce was out in the Los Angeles area, Uh part of... Uh, I think off and on part of the whole Southern Cal ASL community. And you're on the East Coast? And I'm on the East Coast in Southern Virginia in uh, Newport News. 
in yeah. the you know, Williamsburg, Yorktown, Jamestown historical triangle. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, wonderful. So that must have created some uh, difficulties right there. I mean, uh, even with modern it, things like telephones. Um, yeah, it, it was you know the the, the three hour shift in. In right. time, yeah, I didn't think of that either. From, yeah, for for a project that's mostly done weekends and after work or late at night, uh, you know. So the arrangement worked for a while, and then we ended up, you know, severing the partnership. And then, but like I said, you know, Bruce kind enough to turn it all over. And then, eventually, several other individuals that are listed in the credits helped uh, with the preliminary map design, and then. Um, Toward the end, uh, got a huge, you know, break when Charlie Kibler and MMP reached an agreement uh, for Charlie to do the maps. Cause, okay. Yeah, because, yeah, you know, Charlie was my first choice far and away to do the final map artwork. And then when that arrangement was struck, you know, I knew the quality of the product would, would be increased immensely. Yeah, it now, gives it some consistency too, you know, across ASL products. So. Yeah, you know, Charlie, you know, with his with his with his design heritage and his artistic background, he, you know, so he brought more than just the artist's perspective, having you know, been heavily involved in design and development himself. Uh, you know, really provided a lot of you know solid input relative to helping with the whole you know the real solid construction of the map product. In, in terms of not just the artistic part of it, but, you know, a lot of the content. Yeah, when you talk about the art uh, on the map, what are you referring to exactly there? Because you, when I'm looking at the map, obviously I, I see, you know, I see the buildings and the, the shading and windows and things like that. But when I'm playing, what I see are the diabolical lines of sight right. <laughs> that don't quite work out to my advantage no matter what I do. That's yeah, the run- and so that's what I'm wondering if that's where the, the art you're talking about. Yeah, the, the, the running joke is, is that, you know, if a line of sight works to my advantage, it's because I said, well, you know, Charlie and I had a nice working relationship, so I actually yeah. asked him to shift that building <laughs> yeah. a little bit to the right. Yeah. Um, now, so so Charlie, at, at, at the point where he did the, the Budapest mm-hmm. development, had you know switched over to you know there was no such thing as a hand drawn product anymore it's Correct. all computer yeah. generated but what what was nice was i had been able to go through the national archives in college park and then ended up finding some very high quality captured german aerial recon photos uh-huh. of the battlefield that portion of the battlefield from directly overhead on a clear day on the first day of the battle, oh. and, and then a series of you know photographs over the course of the battle, and so between working with the captured aerial recon photos, some maps out of the Library of Congress, as well as modern day uh, the Google Earth, because a large portion of Budapest, although it was heavily damaged was repaired to, to you know pretty much match and so it was only those areas that were massively destroyed like the southern railway station that you know we had to do extra research to try and find period photos from the 30s and 40s that that showed the actual you know architecture and layout of certain portions of the city like for example one night uh, the whole GANS factory area that's on the northeast map section 
is currently today a, a mall and museum area where the architectural firm retained portions of the original factory buildings and they then published a before and after paper, the architectural firm did, and published that online. And so I found that late one night on a, on a you know, 13 pages into a Google search. Wow. And there it was in English and, and Hungarian talking about the entire renovation. And they had you know, period photos from 1912 when the factories were built. So in certain cases, Charlie was working off of actual 1930s, 1940 roof line photos and so some of the buildings that are that charlie draw and this is what i'm talking about the artwork are actually you know scale models more of the buildings than they are just artistic representations of a generic building and so when you look at the gans factory area that's on the northeast map you look at the postal palace i mean those buildings are actually accurate from the roof line down into the the turrets on the postal palace and things like that. So when when I'm talking about the artwork, it, it's it's the you know the the work that Charlie did to capture the 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 essence of you know, Budapest at that scale is really what I'm talking about. Yeah, <laughs> right. How to and then how to get it all to fit into hexes is part of the challenge, right? That yeah. So. <laughs> To, to say I had a huge growth and appreciation for ASL as an entity from beginning to end would be a vast understatement because, you know, we, people talk about, well, you know, there's no 40-meter wide boulevards and things like that. Yeah, when when you go to take what's on an aerial recon photo or on a, you know, a map and convert it into an ASL product, there, there is a real artwork to take a, a construct and put it into a, you know, a hexagonal format. And again, I think that's where Charlie just did an awesome job, um, in in the sense of the layout and the and the perspective and the feel you get. Yeah. And does that is that how the project starts really? I mean, other than uh, you had the concept after reading the article in Military History. Well, that combined with you know with Bruce's research that said, hey, this portion of the battlefield seems of interest. Yeah, I mean that's roughly where the where the concept started, and then I got a huge break when um, one of the other um, authors on, on one of the better books on the subject, Christian Ungvari, he he, he caught me a, um, a, a real favor um, because his PhD had been published, but it had only been published in German and Hungarian, and he kindly sent me several key chapters out of the book that was going to be forthcoming in English, you know, in a year okay. or two, he sent them to me, you know, ahead of time. And those chapters are the ones that covered the fighting in the area that's represented in, in the uh, module. Yeah, because, um, right. I was to get all these scenarios in these sectors. So you're right. You'd focus on an area, uh, for a map like this that had the most battles going on or the longest time kind of thing. Right. So, you know, circa 1999, the level of detail that was contained in the Military History Quarterly article was probably a little higher than you'd like to see in a historical module. And so between that time frame in 99 up until, I mean, when I say the bitter end, I mean, we were doing some scenario adjustments for historical accuracy 
up until the point where MMP, you know, Perry and Chaz basically said, okay, pencils down, um, because it was time to go to, to you know, publication. Mm-hmm. And, and that was because another researcher who I'm indebted to, uh, Kamen Nevenkin, um, who was a Bulgarian researcher, uh, and he just recently published a book, uh, Take Budapest, um, had done a, a huge amount of research by going into the recently opened Soviet slash Russian archives mm-hmm. and had secured a wealth of information that was available nowhere else. And then, frankly, we, you know, I Skyped and real time uh, came in, was kind enough to translate Russian regimental commander um, diaries over the phone to me <laughs> for that portion of the battlefield. And so, what went for some, you know, from some rough level of knowledge on Soviet unit identification, suddenly became, hey, I, I now know the regimental commander name. I know the the order of battle down into, you know, how many T-34s, how many SU-76s were, were roaming the battle field on a on a daily basis. And wow. so And so, the quality of the product, just in terms of the historical accuracy. It really matured over that ten-year period. So yeah, it just blows my mind. So did this author—he is he an ASLer, and he just happened to hear you? No, <laughs> that—that's one of those funny stories. <laughs> you know, as a researcher for an ASL product like this, you know, it, it's an awful lot of evenings of searching the internet, trying to put you know A and B together, and come up with you know something that that forms a logical C, um, and so. I, I knew that um, came and had a had a book that was scheduled to come out on Budapest. It you know three years passed and it was still sitting on the website as a forthcoming pu- publication. And I'm kind of like, well, geez, I'm getting I'm getting short on time. So I basically reached out you know, into the internet community and tracked him down and then formed that relationship toward the end of the uh, research activity in order to secure the information that he had, you know, had just come forth. And the reason his book had not been published was because he had had all this new original research that invalidated much of what he had already written. And so he was negotiating with his publisher to, to do a major rewrite just because, you know, so much new information had come forth. Wow. Yeah. This is a very large product. Yes, and, is, and four, three, is this twice as big or? as Red Barricades, or the well, there's four maps, but I guess well, they're not four quite maps. as large, right? Yeah, the, so the so uh, again, when when Bruce had originally laid out the two maps, they were not at the full one inch, and you know, after talking with Chaz and Perry, the the preference on MMP's part and my part as as a designer would be to go to the full one inch hex size, much yeah. like in Red Barricades, just because the unit density for a lot of the scenarios and the campaign games was, was pretty high. So the preference was, Hey, you know, as, as we all age and the dexterity is, you know, going to heck having that extra thumb and finger space was, was preferred. So, yeah, I really like it a lot. And I, and to me, it says historical module when I see the larger. Yeah. And I I actually re-listened to, to your out of the box on, on, on episode 66 and, I know you had you know, had mentioned that, and and that was MMP's preference, was to 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 make it you know, ease of play for the players for a scenario, you know, for a product like this. 
Although our backs are going out, so it's hard to lean over a large table anymore. But yeah, so so that's <laughs> you know right now, the, nothing that's in the box requires all four map sections. The, okay. The, the two largest campaign games, uh, one of them uses the northeast and northwest map section, and the other one uses the southeast and southwest. Uh, there's a CG four that's on quote under development that would use all four map sections. So right now, from a table space perspective, um, Budapest is pretty manageable with a normal gaming space. Ah, okay. Yeah, we're all looking right. through some of the scenario cards now and seeing, yeah, some take place in the middle of two boards and some are yeah, and on one part of one board, right? Or Right, and as a, again, as the product matured, from a design perspective, um, Sean Deller, who's man cave I'm sitting in here, and I, you know, had quite a few discussions on what would make ease of play better. So once we got a better understanding of where MMP was headed with the size of the maps, um, we adjusted uh, probably a quarter of the scenarios so, such that they're, they're, they fit on just one map section. So in the end of the 17 scenarios that come in the package and one that's already been published in the journal and another one that's forthcoming, the majority of them are played on just one math section. Yeah, uh, 18 is from the journal, yes? Correct, yeah, and, and there should be FB19 coming out in the next journal. Okay. And then Sean and I are kicking around FB20 in order to close things out. But that's that's still TBD. Yeah. Now, when you... When you um. Actually, I was playing with Dave Timonen. You hear his name on the show a lot, although he mm-hmm. never is not a, a face in the hobby. Um, he's always like, uh, we did that big barricades thing. He says, you know, they don't, they can't possibly really play test these campaign games, can they? <laughs> and so, and I sat and thought about it. I'm like, well, yeah, I'm sure the designers play multiple times, but um, can you explain a little bit about how that works on such a big project? Yeah, sure. So this is, you know. This is where I, I say the words, I'm heavily indebted to my playtest team, and I, and I really do mean that. Um, and so, so I'll give you two perspectives. One, the 17 scenarios were laid out intentionally the way they are, such that before you dive into a campaign game, the 17 scenarios cover about 70-some percent of the map area in terms of, you know, if you play the scenario, you gain a familiarity with that portion of the map, such that when you dive into the campaign, you should understand most of the tactical subtleties associated with what you're about to face from a campaign perspective. And all of those scenarios are heavily play-tested, and I want to say heavily, probably somewhere between, oh, 10 and 15 times for each one of the individual scenarios. Yeah, even I would play-test a small scenario for you. Right. Okay. A there we go. Game. There we go. I don't know about awesome. Because because you're always looking for play testers, and so <laughs> so there were really good groups, uh, you know, out of the D.C. area, out of Cleveland, out of Iowa, out of Texas, all of the you know, and 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 they were experienced players, all the way down into you know some newbies. Because from a play test perspective, we wanted to get a, a broad you know sample size of experience to. See see where some of the challenges were because I'll be the first to admit and Sean will be the first to admit that Festung Budapest as a product is, is not beginner ASL. 
Mm -hmm. uh, now it's not PhD level in terms of caves and everything's night and, you know, you know, sea landings, but it's probably that, you know, just short of that master's level where a real familiarity with combined arms and, and all the things you need to do in an urban setting in order to, you know, make progress really need to come into play. And so, but I don't want to chase anybody off. I mean, there are there are a range of scenarios in the package that go from fairly complex to you know standard ASL fare, and so we we try to put something in there for for you know the whole range of the community. But when it comes to the campaign games, the philosophy that Sean and I used, and you know with, along with you know discussions with Chaz and Perry, was that if you're going to sink the hours required to play a campaign game, then you're willing to bite off more. SSRs to get a better flavoring for the historical behavior of the battle. And, that, and that's a consistent philosophy that MMP, I think, has carried over the years with all of the hassles that they've developed. There's always that additional level of complexity to get the additional flavoring in there. Yeah, now that you say that, I never had really, I mean, I knew that existed, but I never thought of that as a design thing. But it, I do enjoy taking the time that, oh, in this thing, there's mouse holes. And in this battle, there's this slightly unique terrain. None of it's overwhelming. Or the troops treat each other differently, perhaps, no quarter or Correct. Whatever. And so when we, when Sean and I talked about, you know, targeting the level of complexity, we borrowed, well, we literally borrowed the Red Barricades rules. I mean, Sean secured those from MMP, and that's what we started with as the baseline rule set for Budapest, and then added a few things out of um, Piper that we thought were, uh, you know, good flavoring, and then a few things out of uh, um, uh, a bridge too far relative to the ammunition shortage, and so we kind of blended a few things that already existed in the system. So it, when you look at the rule set, I, I think the basic rules. Uh, are about 15, 16 pages that cover everything between the SSRs and a discussion of all the unique terrain features. But about 80% of it, 90% of it already exists in the system, in the hassle system somewhere. And so other than a couple of unique building features, all of the special rules for Budapest already come out of the existing system, you know, hassle system. So, uh, and, and then one of the biggest parts of the rule set is for embankment railroads. And that was, you know, after discussions with Perry was provided in total because those are all based on the Hillock rules and the Hillock rules have been out of publication for so long because they, you know, came in west of Alamein um, that we wanted players to have, you know, ready access to the to a, a good set of hillock rules that are then cast as embankment railroad rules. Um, and, it, okay, that answers one of my questions I had written down. I had gone through about half of the product today, um, trying to come up with better questions uh, than I normally have for people. <laughs> instead of just instead of just winging it, okay, and then just going, oh, this yeah. is so cool. <laughs> um, and yeah, one was there's a lot of embankment rules in there, and I was like, oh, how is this different? But I didn't read it closely enough to know. Yeah, so if you oh, grab the chapter F Hillock rules out of the original West of Alamein, yeah, right. I would say 98% of the embankment railroad rules are taken exactly word for word from those chapter F rules. And there's just a few things that we tried to put in there to clarify things like uh, if 
if debris or rubble or uh, destroyed wrecks are sitting on the embankment, what happens? Because, frankly, some of the, and this is my opinion, some of the Chapter B rules relative to embankment railroads probably could have been a little clearer. So, so if there is a difference between the existing hillock rules and the embankment rules, it's for the purpose of trying to clarify what you know what Sean and I perceived as some shortcomings in the embankment railroad rules that exist in Chapter B. But but your original question went to playtesting on on the, the big campaign games, yeah. and yes, so whereas you're asking individuals to take an evening to playtest an individual scenario or a day uh, for each time they play it, yes, um, large commitment of time to play, especially uh, CGs 2 and 3 since, since they're bigger map sections. Um, CG 3 is the one we started with. We actually started in reverse. Uh, we played it here in the Tidewater area uh, probably four or five times. And then I know that, you know, nationwide, then the playtest team probably played it another eight times. And so I would guess there were probably a dozen playings on CG3. And, and the reality is, you know, Sean, Sean comes from a PhD in systems engineering, and I work for NASA in the systems analysis area. And, and the reality is, is with the number of variables in, in, a, in a CG, what you're trying to get to is something that's close enough, acknowledging that there's quite a bit of uncertainty in the potential behavior of the model. And so there are probably things we could have done better, but we stuck with the familiarity of what came out of the red barricades and you know those, those hassles that came before it. And so things like you know the fact that the game, any particular CG day, ends on a die roll, you know, that, that in and of itself introduces a large amount of uncertainty into the potential behavior of an integrated campaign because if you roll a lot of ones, to, you know, or you roll a lot of sixes, you can get a pretty wide variation in, in the number of days over the length of, the, you know, even a long campaign. And so, and, and, and the nature of campaign games tends to be those extra one or two turns at the end of a CG day, if it's been a rough day, can have huge variations in, in, you know, in defenses completely collapsing. I mean, if you haven't read Gary Trez's uh, Game Squad, Gary's done an awesome job on, on detailing his behavior in CG3 as the Axis Defender, and he repeatedly stresses, hey, if it had gone one more turn, it was going to be lights out for the Axis. And so... And, and that's the kind of behavior that we saw during playtesting too. Yeah, so yeah, that's what we joke about. So, um, what, did, what did Sean say? John's wondering the single most important die roll in in, in a CG is oh, that is game and die roll. The yeah. last one, yes. Yeah, so so yes. maybe there's a better mechanism. It's just that you know Sean and I went, went with what's known as potentially trying to come up with some way to develop a different distribution in terms of handling that. And again, you know, there was nothing magic about what we did, but maybe there, maybe there is a better solution to reduce some of that uncertainty. But, but again, if, if you're buying into playing a CG, you know, you're, you're not into, oh, if, it had, if I just had one more turn, that, that's not the experience that you tend to be after if you're going to commit that you know, amount of time and effort. You're, you're into more the experience of, playing something a little more involved. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah. and our Red Barricades, even though it wasn't a campaign, it was the last bid, but experience was 
looking back on it, we kind of I could think of it as separate battles and like say to the Germans, yeah, you lost in the end, but you know, you really won that took that factory from me much easier than I thought. You won that, you won over here, you won over here. You know, it just seems to have so much going on in it. Yeah, there was a real nice discussion the other day on Game Squad about, you know, the how some some guys get disillusioned with the last term charge that's so unrealistic where you're willing to you know, you've conserved your force the whole game and then you're willing to throw ninety percent of it away on the last turn in order to take that last building by charging across the street. And the fact that in CGs, force conservation from day to day is more of a you know, driving factor. Um, so, yeah, so you do see a, a fundamental difference in behavior between the CGs and an individual scenario. But, but again, you know, to commit to playing a CG, I mean, is a ton of work to develop and is a ton of effort for you know, players to, to commit that kind of time to just play. So, you know, my, my take is I will never develop another hassle again because of having to play test the CGs just because it's such a burnout experience. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Now when, when uh, people do play testing and they, they send in your, they send in their response, uh, what happened and whatever, do you then adjust, do you adjust the system? I mean, do you, do you say, Oh, well, we need another tank in this to make this balanced apparently, or we need, you know, two more squads on this side to make this balanced. Is that, the kind of adjustment you do, or do you change the SSR a little bit, or do you change the victory conditions a little bit? Uh, I would say all of the above, you know, depending on a situation-by-situation basis. Um, The the way the scenario playtest process worked was um, Sean and I are pretty evenly matched players, and so we always felt that when we, you know, gave the scenario an initial shakedown, it would be fairly representative if two, you know, equal players sat down across the board from each other. So, typically, before we kicked any scenario out to the larger playtest team, Sean and I would have played a scenario at least twice, once from each side, more times potentially if we didn't like the behavior of, this, of, of what we were seeing during our playtesting. And then at that point, when once we released the scenario. You know, the first question was always, look, at, did you have fun playing this, and would you play it again? Yeah. And if the answer came back, no, well, then there's bigger problems than just adjusting VCs or SSRs. Um, and so once we got a – and we, what we tended to do was, because the development period really on the scenarios was about a five-year process, you know, we were able to feed the scenarios out one by one, and then the play team, playtest team, you know, became more familiar. And then once the maps were developed, we cycled back and replayed all the scenarios again on the actual maps to make sure that what we had seen off the playtest maps was now being matched on the real maps in case there were fundamental shifts in lines of sight or shifts in victory control buildings, things like that. And so what we were looking for from the playtest team was, again, you know, was it fun? Would you play it again? Uh, if the answer was, you know, positive on that, then we started getting into things, you know, quote, I'm, I'm doing air quotes around the word balance here. Um, you know, Sean and I had a, we had an approach in terms of what we were looking for out of a given scenario, what we were trying to model in terms of, you know, the behavior of what, what was trying to be covered in the battle. Um, the forces 
were as close to historical as we could you know, discern information to make them. And so in a certain regard, you know, there was a real reluctance to shift OBs too much since it was a hassle and we were trying to really, you know, match up what we thought existed at that time, acknowledging that we didn't have, you know, perfect knowledge. And then what we were looking for was were the VC clear, uh, was the setup clear, and were the SSRs clear? And I'll be the first to acknowledge again that you know, some of the SSRs here are, I will refer to them as rich as opposed to complex, in that uh, you know sometimes sometimes more is actually less if if the additional verbiage is trying to make things clear. And so yeah, a lot of the scenario cards, and, and you guys noted, hey, there's two full sets. Yeah, a lot of the scenario cards in this are front and back. And, and Brian Yaus was the first one to say, hey, um, we're going to put a second set in here and we're not dinging the customer. And so that second set, you know, came out of their pocket. And that was news to me when they did it. And, and when, you know, Perry and Chaz told me that Brian had suggested this, I was the first one to say, wow, that makes a lot of sense. And so since most of them do run front and back, and and most of that is due to either not large OBs, but diverse OBs because you carry the Hungarians that are Axis, you're carrying the Hungarians that are allied with the Soviets, you're carrying the Soviets, and you're carrying any number of German forces. The way that the MMP does their layout, it just, you know, mathematically started to fall to the backside. And then Sean and I really liked the feature that provided for players to tailor their orders of battle to the way that they like to pursue the attack and defense. And so, you know, half a dozen of the scenarios allow for variable orders of battle where you effectively, it's like a mini campaign game. You get to do in-game reinforcement purchases in order to, again, tailor the order of battle to something that may match either your need or your want. Yeah, a lot. so a lot of the scenarios do have the purchase charts on them, right, on the back sides. Yeah, and, and so once you, once you go down that route, and you start offering you know a variety of choices it it just starts to physically get big and it and it just really doesn't fit on one side of the card i mean and and don't get me wrong i I'll pick up a journal or I'll pick up a publication if a scenario tends to fall the two sides, I tend to give it less attention, so I was like one of the last people that wanted to have things fall to the second side but a lot of it just came out of necessity. And so, yeah, and often that doesn't always increase the length. It's just, you know, because it's quick to grab the reinforcements. It just gives you more variety. Correct. And, and again, you know, I'm looking at some of the scenario cards here. Again, it's just, you know, once you start combining Soviets and Hungarian Soviets and the Buddha Volunteer Regiment, you know, again, it, it just it physically starts to be hard to get it on one side of a card. Yeah, and on the map, of course, we particularly did like the tennis courts. I, I, again, I, after re-listening to episode 66, yes, I, I'm, I'm glad to hear that your initial fascination is still sticking with you and, 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 the, and that your dad played tennis. That was good to note. In the outdoor um, theater. Yes, again, you, you said you were directing the uh, kids' uh, plays at school. So, yeah, the outdoor theater, <laughs> if there hadn't been a specific reference to the fact that they took the uh, greens out of the theater, the, uh, the canvases oh, that, really? that they used um, – for the, you know, when the show, when the show, when the curtain goes up, they took the curtains and they used that in some of their camo, oh. and so, 
So it was kind of like, well, how can I leave the open air theater out of this? So, <laughs> so, so once I actually got a good location off the aerial recon photos, it, it pretty much had to go on the board. Yeah, no, I just, I really do like it. Um, the encounters, you're mentioning the different units, but they are glancing through the rules today. They were not any different, right? Um, okay, so the story behind that was um, the the last campaign game that's being laid out is a little different than the other three campaign games in that it's going to rely on unit purchases as a function of division affiliation and they're going to be bound to certain areas of the map that they historically operated in. And that's why the Felder and Hull units have their unit designation and the 13th Panzer Division has their designation on them. It's because, I mean, historically they operate in certain parts of the battlefield and, and, and the, the big CG is supposed to cover the historical accuracy of where they operated from. Okay. And so nice. that's why those counters are in the package. Yeah. As well as the fact that I think they look cool too. I was just going to yeah, say they're they, very cool. <laughs> they look sharp. Yeah. yeah. But that obviously that makes them make a lot more sense. Yeah, and 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 I and I noticed there's been some questions about that. So I kind of wanted. To, I'm glad you asked the question because I, I did want to clarify that that's why those units are in there, not because I thought people needed super cool you know <laughs> counter sheets to pay for. <laughs> But rather because um, th- there is going to be a functional need to have that the differentiation in the unit affiliation. And I do remember that came from the Pegasus Bridge one too, where they had the different uh, right. Where they, yeah, and the, the later same, reinforcements were different. Right, and the Operation Veritable, they, we borrowed from that the same red to, to cover the Conf uh, Group Europa units here in Budapest. Mm-hmm. And so yeah, so there are, and then again that. We tried to limit the runaway nature of that because once you put a first line or an elite unit in, well, and if it, it fails at DLR, oh, right. and it goes, so, yeah, right. so, so you, just, you suddenly realize, oh, that's why there's so many counter sheets in Beyond Valor. It just becomes a, you know, a, an actual piece count in order to get a high probability that in a large campaign game, you've got enough units of each type to cover a wide range of purchase strategies and then subsequent you know elr reduction factors and so that's why in the end you end up with over 2,000 counters in the box and i noticed the russians use designation letter designation aa and then bb etc were those used in red barricades do you know so the yeah, see this is this was the beauty of working with Chaz and perry you, yeah, you just yeah. learned so much more about the system so for example like the lay, the fundamental layout on a scenario card there's like tried and true rules for that that I just never paid attention to before. Mm-hmm. And so like when you write a victory condition, you always write it from the attacker perspective. Okay. And so I had all these original scenarios written from the defender perspective because in a certain sense, it's oftentimes easier to write it from that perspective. But, but there, is a, there is a standard that you lay a scenario card out to that we had to match. Same thing happens you know, re- relative to a large number of things, whether it's the rules or the counters, you, you get into these patterns. And so if you go through the system, MMP has a unit ID strategy laid out when you go from uppercase single letter to lowercase like lower case single letter to uppercase double letter to lowercase 
double letter. And so there's a strategy that, that if you go through and lay it out, um, you, you tend to see that all the support weapon IDs, it's kind of like, well, why does the support weapon start with E? Well, that's because, you know, A through D came in beyond valor. Yeah, right. And EFG and above now come in the hassle. So, none, so of, none of these then do duplicate the other ones at all? No, they should all okay. have okay. unique identifiers that are tailored specific to Beyond Valor, which theoretically is the only module that you really need to play Budapest. Oh, okay. So all of the AFVs and ordnance and inventory that you need to play, every one of the scenarios comes in the box, so you don't need to own Armies of Oblivion. That was another concern that you know, Armies of Oblivion had just gone out of print mm. when we were getting, you know, ready to go to print. And so, again, you know, talking with Chaz and Perry, I'm kind of like, hey, you know, I don't want to I don't want to stick the average player to have to buy a $250 Armies of Oblivion on eBay in order to play, you know, one of 17 scenarios. And so, yeah. again, when you start looking at why are there nine counter sheets in there, that's because... You've got all the vehicles, all the guns you need to play every one of the scenarios, and a very high probability that you can play all three CGs and not have to own anything, you know, uh, other than Beyond Valor. So I could wow. leave my Russians unpunched in here, and my extra Hungarian little vehicles and things may not need them because I got everything that comes before. Right? Correct. Yeah. If you, okay. yeah, if you already own everything up to them. <laughs> Right, and but so, I will want to separate out my nice new German designation counters. Yeah, the, and the nice thing is that the quality and the counters has that MMP has put out has really gone up in the last six, seven, eight years since you know since they have increased and gone to like the publication of the Beyond Valor uh, version twos. Um, and so, you know, the, the, just the, the crispness, the, the, the print quality, yeah. things like that has really, has really improved. And I'm sure they're going to punch better than some of the past games have. But Yeah, uh, and, and so, so whereas a lot of people are kind of like, well, you know, it would be nice to have Yanks. Even though there were pallets sitting there, I'm kind of like, man, I'd love to have a brand new Yanks. Because, uh, frankly, I play with American counters clipped out of the starter kits because the quality is so much nicer mm, okay. than what sits, you know, comes out of the Yanks box. Yeah, and you had some new terrain things, this uh, railroad turntable, uh, railroad underpasses. They're just simple things you found you needed in the game? Yeah, so historically, this is, so historically I went at risk that that was actually a turntable. And so um, it, it took me till post-publication to actually get visual evidence that that was a turntable. But then I did find it about a year later because I really haven't stopped researching the battle. And so, so, so the nice thing is, other than you know, board gamers being real geeks, model railroaders and the whole train community <laughs> yeah. and, and, and tram people, wow, they're just as big of geeks as we are. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and, and so from a historical perspective... If you want to find out what a 1932 tram looks like in Hungary, man, that that's you know there's a community out there willing to help you. <laughs> and so and so the turntable, as much as I mean, I kind of had to put it in, and you know, Sean and I decided to model it as simply as we could. You know, it's, it's effectively a, a fancy anti-tank ditch, and nothing more than that. 
but hey, it looks really cool on the map board. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so, um, and so once you have that, you kind of need to, if you're in it, you know, you kind of need a counter to say I'm in it. And so there's a couple of, you know, there's one in the box to use and there's one in the box in case you lose the one that's, that you use. So, um, so that's why there's two of them in the box. I did look through the leader names. There is a nine neg one liter Klein. So that is the second Klein leader in the, in the series. I assume you just kind of threw me a bone there since uh, all, I, all I did. So, wouldn't so, fit on that. Yeah. So the truth was if I paid more attention, you both would have been covered in there. <laughs> Um, the, the, the leader oh, counters, so uh, yeah, about 90% of them are historical. Uh-huh, I, it looks I, like I, it. I put yeah. Quite, yeah. So, so the nice thing was there was a real good record on the leader composition for, uh, the Van A battalion. I mean, down to the individual squad leader. And so the Hungarian names are mostly out of that unit. The, and then the German leaders are mostly historical out of, uh, a combination of the 8th SS Division and the Feldernal and the 13th Panzer. So um, other than other than probably a dozen playtest names that hadn't already been picked up, mm-hmm. um, I, again, 90-some percent of um, the leader names are, are historical in nature. But, but, but yes, no, I did not cover both of you, unfortunately. <laughs> If I had to do it all over again, you'd be there. Well, when it's reprinted, maybe. There we, can. we go. Yeah. That, all right. We'll, 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 yeah. we'll, we'll target it then. Um, I noticed in the rules, no human waves for Russians. That's historical, I suppose. Yeah, in the sense that all the research we saw, the run up to Budapest was really bloody uh, for both sides. By the time they got into and laid siege to the city on Christmas Eve, uh, the Soviets were concerned about two things. One, the Germans in Budapest breaking out, and two, additional German units outside the city breaking in. So they actually formed a couple of rings, one to contain the Axis units trapped in the city, the Germans and the Hungarians, and another ring that was there to face off against the German um, panzer corps that were trying to break into the city. Now, it's not exactly clear what the Germans were going to do if they broke in, um, because it, you know, it, Budapest had <laughs> declared a fortress city, and so you know, according to Hitler, nobody was supposed to be leaving. Uh-huh. So historically, it wasn't really clear, and I'm still not sure that it is, what the Germans would have done would have done had they been successful in, in reinforcing the city. So, so at that point. Because of the heavy nature of the losses on the Soviet side, they were not inclined to use human wave tactics according to everything we saw. They, they actually, once they had encircled the city um, from Christmas Eve through the 16th, 17th of January, they systematically reduced the pest side of the town, which is you know, a flat, the flatter part of the city, and then once they had done that, they switched all their units over onto the other side of the Danube and systematically reduced the Buddha side of the city, which is what's, you know, half of which is reflected in the Budapest module. And so they actually formed assault group teams, heavy concentrations of assault engineers, flamethrowers, and direct fire support 
uh, artillery, anti-tank guns to reduce on a block-by-block basis. And so one of the cool things that you know, historically turned up in the end was um, a researcher out of the defense, uh, military defense museum in Budapest and uh, came and both supplied me with the block-by-block identifications on, on historically how the, how the Soviets targeted the city. And so the, the scenarios and the CGs do a pretty good representation of following those phase lines. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I noticed, too, the, the falling debris. Now, that seemed new to me. And, and it existed is. in other places, but not the falling part, right? Right. So, well, actually, so in the system, there are no debris counters. The only debris in the system is that that's painted onto the barricades map. Yeah, or palm debris, I think. From... Oh, and palm debris, yes, correct, for the, um, for the Tarawa module. Yeah, so, so again, working with Chaz and Perry, they were, they were open to, again, a design philosophy that Sean and I wanted to use, which was when the battle started, when the siege started on Christmas Eve, the vast majority of the city was pretty pristine in nature and then was only reduced over the next two-and-a-half-month period. And so we made a design choice to have the maps actually start out intact but wanted to get to a state of rubble and debris. And so um, Chaz and Perry were wide open to the idea of then incorporating a debris counter into the system. And so we just needed a mechanism to generate that other than just by SSR. We wanted to allow for the possibility that as buildings got destroyed, you could generate debris in addition to the normal rubble. Yeah, yeah, it sounds, because you're right, it does look pristine, and that's something that strikes you. I didn't mention, I don't think, before, but comparing to red um, to the red barricades and stuff where there's all this shell holes and everything all yeah. over the place. Yeah, so if you effectively look at it as a hassle, as, a, as a, you know, something, you know, a movie picked up, you know, either midway or at the beginning, this movie started at the beginning, and the city was pretty pristine, as opposed to something like Stalingrad, where you're, you're, you're effectively buying in after a lot of, you know, an awful lot of destruction had occurred. And so that, that was a design choice that Sean and I, you know, talked about at length and then decided to go with the pristine nature. Yeah, all right. It must have been quite a thrill when the final product was delivered to your door. Yeah, actually it was, well, and I knew it was coming. Um, since it was a winter offensive release, yeah, Perry handed me the first box off, off the, out of the, out of the first set of uh, shipping pallet at the Winter Offensive Tournament the oh, first yeah. night. Yeah, so it was kind of, you know, so I, I got the honor of opening the first package yeah. that had been already, you know, sealed up, you know, the day before. And it, and it had that classic, you know, new ink smell, so you knew it had just rolled off the presses, you know, minutes before. Right. And so, yes, it was very exciting. So uh, how did the name... It must have been the toughest thing. How'd you come up with the name <laughs> Festung Budapest? Yeah, we were, you know, really racked the uh, creativity. Because uh, I've for come that up one. with some. I've come up with some alternatives. Uh, mm-hmm. Alternatives you could have named it. Uh, okay. Course, I'm sure you were thinking about Budapest Slugfest. Uh, that was, I think that was on the list. It might yeah. have been top ten. Um, Gouda Fest in Budapest, which really had nothing to do with squad leader, but it's kind of, Fun you know, to it's say. more like uh, the cheese festival that a 
Yeah. Um, Gouda cheese. That's the Gouda pass. Yeah, one of the single guys on the team. There's the one uh, scenario that's got the guy in the tower. Uh, looks like he's manning the radio looking out the clock tower. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he wanted a booty call for that yeah. scenario name. And uh, after, after many hours of debate, Sean and I decided probably not the best. For a you know a PG rated uh, yeah, product, so that so that did not make the final scenario cut. Yeah, my the only other title I could think of was Budapestivus for the rest of us. Ah, there we go. <laughs> yes, we could, and we could have had a Festivus, uh, you know, scenario in there to match the theme. That's right. I think. Yeah, I think one of these will be the title of the show. Uh, probably. We gonna, yeah, yeah, we post. There we go. Yeah. Well, it's an absolutely remarkable achievement, and. Uh, as anybody can tell you, I, I'm the first one to be awestruck by squad leader. But to look at this, I, I mean, it's just amazing. And uh, I know we looked at it in episode 66, but they brought it over again and taken it out. And it's just, it's gorgeous. And it is um, just a magnificent achievement. Thank you. I appreciate that. Um, but again, you know, the the amount of effort that Chaz and Perry and, uh, and Klaus Malmstrom, you know, put in from a design perspective, yeah. from a rules perspective, and the playtesting that the whole team did. Yeah, from Sean Deller. Yeah, Sean, yeah. This, this project doesn't happen if Sean's not beating on me on a constant basis. I mean, it really would not have happened. And so, you know, the commitment that Sean put into this, and then the work that Charlie did, uh, you know, and the, and on the map and the final product, and the and the work that Bruce did on the initial construct, again, you know, I, Charlie's Charlie's work speaks for itself, but it's a thing of beauty in my opinion, and and the quality of the product, you know, is nothing near what it would have been uh, had he not, uh, in my opinion, done the artwork. So again, total team effort, um, and I'm and I'm thankful to the the different researchers and historians that provided you know, oh, the yeah. background material to, to really, you know, instead of having to say second Ukrainian front, um, to be able to go down and identify things at the, at the regiment level or below, um, uh, it, to me really helped. Yeah. Amazing. And, and the, and, and the other thing is, is I'm just grateful to the community. It, it seems to be getting a wide amount of play and the vast majority of the feedback uh, seems to be very positive. Um, we tried to put the three-player scenario in there just because um, Sean and I had had so much fun over the years playing Dogs of War, which, you know, anytime you play a three-player scenario, you know, break out the beer. Wait, what's the name of that one? Uh, At the Narrow Passage. That's the one that's the oh. four-pager. I did not know. It didn't, I didn't figure that out yet. Yeah, so so we, we had the honor of being the first uh, official ASL publication to contain a three-player scenario, fully acknowledging that the many hours we spent playing uh, Dogs of War was an invaluable um, experience for having uh, helped with, with the layout of the, on the scenario. But the added twist is, the nice thing about three-player scenarios is they're the ultimate in uh, Machiavellian uh, business negotiating strategy of, hey, why don't you screw your buddy over over there? <laughs> <laughs> and, and and then when the guy turns around, you you know you stab him in the back. Yeah. I mean that's that's the beauty of any three-player scenario if it's well laid out. The added twist for this one was the Hungarian gets to play both sides of the fence. So the Hungarian player controls not only the Axis Hungarians, he controls the Hungarians that are allied with the Soviets. So he has friends on both sides of the oh, board. Wow. 
Yeah, so um, I got nothing but positive review there in, in terms of the Scott Blanton down at Gamers Armory kindly hosted a massive uh, day-long uh, at the Narrow Passage three-player fest, and we banged out quite a few playtest games that day, and feedback was encouraging. And, and um, most of the feedback I've read now online is, is the same thing. It, it's gotten out of it what we wanted, which was, uh, the words hilarity were used in a in a publication I saw the other day on Game Squad, and had a great time. And and that's to me what what you want out of a three player scenario. Yeah, sure yeah. do. Well, we thank you uh, very very much for taking the time to talk to us tonight. Now, Jeff, Dave, I appreciate um, appreciate the invite and uh, appreciate the kind words you guys have um, provided uh, in the past. And um, it was a pleasure talking to you. And yeah. I'm pretty sure that. Um, Andy Hershey would be more than happy to talk to you about Comms Group, sure. Uh, Andy and I have talked to him a, a number of times. I, I'm pretty sure he'd be happy to oh. share his experiences. You, uh, you threw his name out the other day as, hey, if, Andy, if you're out there, I think Andy would be happy to talk about. Uh, because 10 years ago, that would have been the project that I would have liked to have done if I hadn't been working on Budapest oh. for all the same reasons that Andy you know, developed the product that he did. It's just a fascinating study of a unique battle that, that I think they did a marvelous job capturing yeah, the essence yeah. of. Well, well, we'll have to put him on the yep, list. or have him contact us for yeah. sure. And, uh, yeah, um, I'd be happy to drop him a note if you'd like. Yeah, uh, please do. Oh, that'd be great, yeah. Yeah, because, uh, you, know, uh, you know, we've shared design philosophies in the past at different tournaments, and um, I know he'd be happy to talk about his experiences, too. Yeah, yeah we got to fill great. up another 100 shows after this first 100. That's so. right. Well, yeah, I mean, you know. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I mean, I was again. I thought I was Jones, and if this was going to be the hundredth episode, but <laughs> well, uh, I'll maybe we'll it. repeat it at, again at the hundredth. Oh, there we go. Yeah, you can take some of best of snippets. That's yeah, right. Actually, I'm working on that, but we're thinking hundred and one for that one. Oh, okay. There we go. There we go. Well, have a great time with your gaming tonight, and uh, we'll look forward to seeing you at. Uh, well, whenever we knows, get back Oktoberfest out, yeah. or whatever. Yeah, if you guys yeah. make Oktoberfest in the fall, that that would be awesome. And, yeah. and I noticed you guys mentioned you'd like to make it out to a Winter Offensive. Um, yeah, Oktoberfest, Winter Offensive, and uh, the Bitter Ender down in Cary, North Carolina. Are it's three three tournaments we try to hit on an annual basis. Yeah, but, you guys don't make the ASL Open Chicago. Right? Yeah, that's just that extra bit. Yeah, see, I grew up in Cleveland, so I I get to. Um, I get to use the excuse I'm going home to, you know, see my aging parents. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. And then I pull in the door, sleep at their house, and then abandon them for the other, you know, 16 hours out of the day while I go play yeah. games. Yeah, very, very, you know, very loving son of me. Yeah. You're a good guy. Yeah. Well, thanks again. All right, guys. Uh, All right. Have a great night. Take and, care. And tell Winston I said hi. And yes. I, 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 did, I didn't hear him this time. I was kind of disappointed. No, he's, uh, he's upstairs he's uh, sleeping or something. Oh, okay. Yeah. All right. I'll tell him you said hello. All right. Well, Augie's roaming the man cave here someplace. That's Sean's dog. So. Yeah, and Sean's got a defense set up, I hope, by now. Uh, looks like it's all set up, and uh, yeah, we're about to dive into something. <laughs> all right. We'll roll low and rally well. All right. All thanks, right. guys. Right, Bye-bye. Bye. All right. Have a good one. Bye. Wait, master. It might be dangerous. You go first. Very excellent interview. That Bill, Bill is amazing. Speaks very well. Yeah, the thing just really flowed. The yes. author connections. Yeah. That is the most amazing yeah. thing to me. Yeah. Contacting these people and talking to them and getting all their information firsthand. And 
it uh, was really great. So good. To, we'll have to look for him. Mm-hmm. So I guess that's going to wrap us up for 96. Yep. Thanks you know, for listening, everybody. That can only mean one thing, 97. Coming soon. Coming soon. And so we'll remind you to uh, roll low. And rally quite well. But, but not, not when, when you're, you're playing, playing us. Up. Bye, everybody. Bye-bye. I don't know. Well, I may cancel my order for Rising Sun, though. No, you're not going to. I might. We're playing all those Japanese scenarios right now.